Welcome to the A Catholic Life Podcast. I am Matthew, the author of A Catholic Life, welcoming you to episode 50 of the A Catholic Life Podcast. In today's episode on Septuagesima Sunday, I address the following topics. First, the liturgical changes for Septuagesima as we enter this period of preparation and penance leading up to the beginning of Lent. Secondly, the value of fasting in Septuagesima. I discuss how there was a practice in some places of fasting during Septuagesima in order to prepare for the strictest fast of Lent. Uh, Thirdly, I address the Feast of the Prayer of Christ, which is a Mass in some places, but the spirituality of this feast is, I think, particularly important this week. And lastly, I address briefly the upcoming feast days this week so we can live liturgically. But before we get into these topics, I'd like to stop and thank the sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by PrayLatin.com. PrayLatin.com offers Latin prayer cards to learn and share prayers in the sacred language. Learn your basic prayers in Latin conveniently on the go. Practice your pronunciation with easy-to-follow English phonetic renderings of Latin words. PrayLatin.com offers prayer cards in various formats, including Latin-English rosary pamphlets with the traditional 15 mysteries. Shop for additional Latin resources like missile booklets, server response cards, and much more. Please visit PrayLatin.com today. On to the first topic of this episode. This episode 50 is dedicated to Septuagesima. And to start, I'd like to go over some of the uh, liturgical changes beginning with Septuagesima. As I mentioned in the episode last week, we now no longer pray that most beautiful prayer of the angels, which ceased to be said last Sunday, uh, last Saturday night. Um, as a result, uh, we will find that the divine office has an additional prayer that we will say in praise of God, but it is no longer the beautiful prayer that we're so used to hearing this time of year. But some of the other changes that are going to be particularly significant if you go when you, when you go to mass today, of course, is you will see the violet vestments that are now being worn, and they are going to be worn all days of Septuagesima, except on feast days. So from Septuagesima Sunday, really until Holy Thursday, we will be in this period of penance and seeing a lot of violet vestments. As during Advent and Lent, the Gloria and the Te Deum are also no longer said on Sundays. And the readings at Matins for this week are the first few chapters of Genesis, telling of the creation of the world, of Adam and Eve, of the fall of man, and the resulting expulsion from the Garden of Eden, as well as the story of Cain and Abel. In the following weeks before and during Lent, the readings continue to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and the Gospel reading for Septuagesima week is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So we see the church places before our eyes the significance of sin, how truly disastrous it is, how it raptured and ruptured, sorry, the significant bond between God and man, and how our Lord had to come to to earth, how he had to take on our sinful human nature and ultimately save us as he did on Calvary. So Septuagesima is this period of preparation, and those are some of the liturgical changes that we will notice during Septuagesima. But the second topic I'd like to discuss, and this is a little more significant because a lot of people talk 
about and know of these liturgical changes for Septuagesima because they're they're commonly done in the 1962 Missal and, of course, all the ones beforehand, so traditional Catholics are familiar of them. But I also want to discuss the value of fasting in Septuagesima, a topic of a recent article of mine published on A Catholic Life that I will link to, of course, in the show notes. It's something that doesn't get a lot of coverage. And in fact, this is covered also at length in my book, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Absence, which I'm very happy to say is now available in its second edition. The second edition is more than double the length of the first edition. So it's a great addition to your library. Even if you bought the first edition, the second edition will have so much more, including the value of fasting and Septuagesima. So on to this topic, uh, one thing I'd like to do is step back for a second and remind everybody Septuagesima is both the name of the third Sunday before Lent, that's today, as well as the season itself that runs from this day until Ash Wednesday. So Septuagesima is both. It's both Septuagesima Sunday today, and it's also the name of a season. The other Sundays in the season of Septuagesima are Sexagesima Sunday, which is next Sunday, and Quinquagesima Sunday, which is the following Sunday. And in some places, a custom observing a fast of devotion in anticipation of and in preparation for the Great Lenten Fast was observed, as Father Weezer notes in his Handbook of Christian Feasts and Customs, where he says in part, quote, This preparatory time of pre-Lent in the Latin Church was suggested by the practice of the Byzantine Church, which started its Great Fast earlier, because their 40 days did not include Saturdays. St. Maximin, in the year 465, the Bishop of Turin, mentioned the practice in one of his sermons. It is a pious custom, he said, to keep a fast of devotion, not of obligation, before the start of Lent, end quote. Dom Guerinjay also mentions how and where the fast of Septuagesima began, noting that the law of custom governed this fast in certain places, but not universally. He says in part, quote, The First Council of Orleans held in the early part of the 6th century enjoined the faithful of Gaul to observe before Easter quadragesima, as the Latins call Lent, and not quinquagesima, in order, says the council, that unity of custom may be maintained. Towards the close of the same century, the fourth council held in the same city repeals the same prohibition and explains the intentions of making such an exactment by ordering that the Saturdays during Lent should be observed as days of fasting. Previously to this, in the year 511 and 541, the first and second councils of Orange had combated the same abuses by also forbidding the imposing of the faithful the obligation of commencing the fast at Quinquagesima. The introduction of the Roman liturgy in France, which was brought about by the zeal of Pepin and Charlemagne, finally established in this century the custom of keeping Saturday as a day of penance, and as we have just seen, the beginning of Lenin Quinquagesima was not observed excepting by the clergy. In the 13th century, the only church in the Patriarch of the West, which began Lent earlier than the Church of Rome, was that of Poland. Its Lent opened on the Monday of Septuagesima, which was owing to the rights of the Greek church, being used much in Poland. The custom was abolished even in that country by Pope Innocent IV in the year 1248, end quote. is an appropriate time for us to begin preparing our bodies for the upcoming Lenten fast by incorporating some fasting into our routine. So even though we're no longer living before the year 1240 in Poland and we're beginning this fast in Septuagesima, and even if we're not a member of the Greek Catholic Church, which does begin the fasting during this period, we can and should take preparation. 
Fasting on Wednesdays, Fridays, and even Saturdays at this time during Septuagesima will help make the transition to a true Lenten fast easier. And if you know my work, you know I'm a strong advocate that all of Lent, that is all 40 days, that is every day but Sunday, should be kept as fast days. And every day, including Sundays, from Ash Wednesday until we celebrate our Lord's resurrection, should be days of abstinence from meat, as well as all animal products, meat, dairy, etc., I go over much more of that in the book, The Definitive Guide to Catholic Fasting and Absence. And I also cover that on some of the early podcasts, episodes one through five, which were uh, recorded during Lent of last year. On to the second topic of this particular episode. I'd like to discuss the Feast of the Prayer of Christ. Now, each year on the Tuesday after Septuagesima, there was celebrated a Mass in some places, which is, of course, in the traditional Missal that you'll find before 1955. And this special Mass is for the Prayer of Christ. It has been around for several centuries, and the Catholic Encyclopedia summarizes this feast day and is worthy of our meditation as we focus on that this upcoming Tuesday. The spirituality of this feast day can help us prepare during the Septuagesima time. And this is what the Catholic Encyclopedia says, quote, This feast occurs on the Tuesday after Septuagesima. Its object is to commemorate the prolonged prayer which Christ offered in Gethsemane in our behalf in preparation for his sacred passion. The office insists on the great importance of prayer. The feast is placed at the beginning of Lent to remind us that the penitential season is above all a time of prayer. The office probably was composed by... The bishop, the bishop of Todi, at the suggestion of St. Paul of the Cross, who died in 1775, and together with other six offices by which the mysteries of Christ's Passion are celebrated, they were approved by Pope Pius VI. The hymns were composed also at this time. Outside of the congregation of St. Paul, this feast was adopted later than any of the other feasts of the Passion. It is not found in the Proporium of the Salernum from 1793, nor in that of Livorno from 1809. Other dioceses took it up only after the city of Rome had adopted it in 1831 and had not yet been inserted into the Baltimore Ordo, end quote. But I think that the beautiful prayer of the collect from this particular feast day is something that we can we can print out if you go to the link in the show notes, and you can pray especially this coming Tuesday. And this beautiful prayer is as follows. O Lord Jesus Christ, who in the garden with words and example taught us to pray to overcome the dangers of temptation, grant us that always intent on prayer, we deserve to obtain copious fruits. You who are God and live and reign with God the Father in the unity of the Holy Ghost forever and ever. Amen. On to the last topic of this episode, as I have done in all the previous episodes, I'd like to give a brief overview of the feast days this week. So even though we're in Septuagesima, we are still celebrating some feast days. And you'll notice, for instance, the violet vestments that I mentioned that are the characteristics of Septuagesima are not going to be worn on these particular days. So today, January 28th, is the Feast of St. Peter Nolasco. And it's also the commemoration of St. Agnes. And this is what I'll say about that. Besides being the feast of St. Peter and Lasco, January 28th in the universal calendar uh, before 1962 mentions a commemoration of St. Agnes. And this is the same Agnes, of course, who we just celebrated a little bit ago on January 21st. Why did the church place a commemoration of this saint eight days thereafter? 
Now, this is an ancient feast day, this commemoration of St. Agnes, and according to Father Butler's Light of the Saints in 1866, quote, a second commemoration of St. Agnes occurs on this day in the ancient sacramentaries of Pope Galatius and St. Gregory the Great, and also in the true martyrology of Bede, end quote. So it goes back a very, very long time. But the eighth day after her death is why we uh, recall it today. And indeed, it is a special one. It was eight days after her death that St. Agnes appeared to her parents with a train of virgins and a lamb at her side. And this is what's stated in the pictorial lives of the saints. Quote, a week after her death, St. Agnes appeared to her parents as they were praying at her tomb. She was amid a choir of virgins clothed in golden robes and crowned with garlands. She begged them not to weep for her as for one dead telling them rather to rejoice with her in her happiness, end quote. So even though this is Sunday, may we not forget this important commemoration of St. Agnes and let us remember to pray for her intercession, especially to remember to pray for the conversion of our family and friends and to especially honor the fourth commandment and to pray for the spiritual needs of our parents. As I mentioned today, if it were not Septuagesima Sunday, it would liturgically be kept as the Feast of St. Peter uh, Nolasco on January 28th. One thing to know, the Feast of St. Peter Nolasco was kept on January 31st until it was moved for St. John Bosco, who was canonized in 1934 by Pope Pius XI. So if you have a very old miss, you might notice some change there because his feast day did move around after that change in 1934. St. Peter Nolasco is the saintly founder of the Royal and Military Order of Our Lady of Mercy of the Redemption of Captives. He lived from 1182 to 1258. He was born in southern France. After the death of his wealthy parents, he spent his inheritance in Barcelona to rescue Christians enslaved by the Moors. He formed a lay confraternity, which later developed into the religious order that is commonly known as the Mercedarians, and led his fellow workers into Moorish territory to purchase the freedom of Christian captives and to make numerous conversions among the non-Christians. Later, St. Uh, Peter's Mercenarians labored among the Indians of the far-flung Spanish-American Empire. And again, as I as I often say in the links to the show notes, you'll find much more information on his life that we can cover in this episode. Now, January 29th, tomorrow, is the Feast of St. Francis de Sales. He is a bishop and a doctor of the church who lived from 1567 to 1622. He was a lawyer before he felt called to the priesthood, and he received the message, leave all and follow me. So he left and was ordained a priest. Now, his family fiercely opposed his vocation, but he still followed God, and through a devoted life of prayer and his gentle manners, he won over his family. At the young age of 35, St. Francis became Bishop of Geneva. He was a preacher, writer, and spiritual director. He was also good friends to St. Vincent de Paul, amongst others. He died on December 28, 1622, and was canonized in April 19, 1665. He is a doctor of the church and the author of many books that continue to provide great influence on souls today. He also did much to combat the errors of the Protestants of that time, and through his writings and through his sermons, won back many souls, especially in Switzerland, back to the Catholic faith who had fallen to the errors of the Protestants. Now, the next day, uh, we go to January 20th. That is the Feast of St. Martina, 
virgin and martyr. She's a Roman virgin, the child of a noble Christian council, whom it is said that he was extremely merciful towards the poor and very zealous for faith in the Holy Trinity. His daughter lost both her parents while she was still young, and for the love of Christ, she distributed all she inherited to the poor, that she might be more free to hasten towards martyrdom during the persecutions which had recently begun. Now, her relics uh, disappeared after her martyrdom. Her death occurred on January 1st during the fourth year of Alexander Severius, but her relics were finally found all the way, finally, in the year 1634 during the papacy of Pope Urban VIII, and they were found near the Mamertine prison with those of several other martyrs. All of them were placed in a beautiful church dedicated to St. Martin in the Roman Forum, and Pope Urban VIII spared no efforts in promoting her veneration, and through his solitude, the office was enhanced with hymns for matins and laws, and in these we read that her soul rose to heaven, where she was seen afterwards upon a royal throne while the blessed sang praises to God. And this is what Monsignor Paul Guerin in Lives of the Saints says is a worthy reflection on this day. Quote, God calls his saints to him at every age. Little children turn to him with faith and love, strong men in their mature years, white-haired grandparents and servants of God in their golden age, and we find martyrs ready for every torment at all epochs of life. What is important is to be ready and to desire the most important day of our life, that of our death, end quote. And of course, our death is the most important day because at the moment of death, if we're in the state of grace or not, determines if we go to heaven or not. That is the determiner if you get to heaven. Are you in the state of grace at the moment you die? So let us keep that in mind. January 31st is the feast of St. John Bosco who lived from 1815 to 1888. He was a man of God who received visions of Mary uh, and numerous dreams. One of those is the famous dream of a pope dying with another pope, rising up to steer the church to safety. This famous dream is called the Two Pillars. Now, St. John Bosco worked countless miracles. He had the gift of multiplication of loaves. He even raised a boy from the dead to give him the chance of a good confession. The boy confessed his sins and died. And at this time, he went straight to heaven. Now, it is worthy to know, we're talking about the 1800s. We're not talking about, the, uh, the, you know, 2,000 years ago where some might say these stories have been fabricated and there's no historical evidence. We have pictures of St. John Bosco. He was ordained a priest in 1841, and he worked tirelessly with young boys in his neighborhood. His goal to make saints out of them, at least one of his boys became a saint that we know of, and that is St. Dominic Savio. St. John Bosco founded the Oratory of St. Francis de Sales and was the chaplain there. He opened up workshops there for tailoring and shoemaking to help the boys not only grow spiritually, but have enough money to live. Ultimately, St. John lived daily for our Lord. He would rise early, hear confessions, write letters to those in need for hours into the night. He wrote over 130 works defending the faith, and for that he was hated by non-Catholics. There were, in fact, numerous plots to kill him, though none succeeded. In 1854, St. John Bosco formally banded together under the patronage of St. Francis de Sales, and with Pope Pius IX's encouragement, he founded the Salesians in 1859, whose charism focused on missionary and educational work. He was beatified on June 2, 1929, by Pope Pius XI, who later canonized him on Easter Sunday, that is April 1, 1934. He was given the title Father and Teacher of Youth, and his feast day was assigned to January 31st, thus moving St. Peter Nolasco from that time to January 28th. A great saint of these modern times. Now, the two additional things I'll talk about, but briefly, since we're running out of time in this episode, is February 1st is the feast of St. Ignatius of Antioch. 
the martyr in early Rome around the year 100 AD. He was devoured by animals instead of denouncing the faith. He was a convert from paganism and lived a life of holiness. And the legends say that he was the infant that our blessed Lord held in his arms, as recorded in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 9. St. Ignatius of Antioch succeeded St. Peter as the Bishop of Antioch. In the year 107, St. Ignatius of Antioch used the term Catholic Church for the first time, which described the universal church established by Christ on earth. And in the approximately in the year 107, St. Ignatius of Antioch died as a martyr. Before his martyrdom, he wrote many letters, and he is an apostolic father. And the lastly, this upcoming Friday is the Feast of Candlemas, also known as the Purification of Our Lady. It is the end of the Christmas season. Now, even though Candlemas is later on this Friday, I do want to say I think it's quite appropriate that if you haven't already, we should put away the Christmas decorations now because we are entering the period of penance of Septuagesima. And yes, Candlemas is coming up, and that will bring a close to the Christmas season. It would not be appropriate to keep out Christmas decorations past the beginning of Septuagesima. Now, Candle Mass is the day in which we have the traditional blessing and distribution of candles. It's customary to bring candles from home to be blessed if there are at least 51% beeswax that you use for devotional purposes, for instance, family altars or Advent candles, etc. These can also be lit after dusk on All Saints Day for use during the Sacrament of Extreme Unction and for use during storms and in times of trouble. Now, Dom Geringer wrote in 1871 that, quote, we apply the name of Christmas to the 40 days which begin with the Nativity of our Lord on December 25th and end with the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary on February 2nd. It is a period which forms a distinct portion of the liturgical year, end quote. So this is the culmination of that portion. And I will say that there was a custom in some places, and in fact, Rome did this as late as the 1800s, that the day before the purification, which happens to be the feast of St. Ignatius of Antioch, was kept as a day of fasting and absence. So that's something that we might want to voluntarily consider doing this upcoming Thursday. So in addition to easing into the Lenten fast with Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, this upcoming Thursday is a great day for penance as we begin to prepare for the feast of Our Lady's Purification on Friday. And the very last thing worth mentioning is the Feast of St. Blaise is this upcoming Saturday. Now, St. Blaise is particularly important because he's not only one of the 40 holy helpers, but there is the famous blessing of throats, which takes place on his feast day. So that is something that hopefully more and more people are experiencing at parishes. Make sure you go to Mass on February 3rd. The priest will have a special blessing invoking St. Blaise to bless your throat and keep you from illness this upcoming year. So keep all of these in mind. Again, everybody, thank you for listening. May God grant you a most blessed week, and let us strive for greater holiness this and every other week. Ad maiorum. Dei Gloriam. Quid olis peccata, 